0: Let me say one word about Tiny Esther first. Today is, today is the fast day of Esther. Tiny Esther is not actually it's strange because Purim is, falls on Sunday. Purim falls on Sunday, so Tiny Esther should be the day before Purim. We observe it on, so it should be on Shabbat. Saturday, but we don't fast on Saturday. So if you push it, it should push back to Friday. But we don't like to fast on Friday either. So we, outside of the 10th day of Teveh, we don't fast on Friday. So it, get, it gets pushed back to Thursday. I'll just say a couple of words about Tiny Dester. Maybe you know this. First of all, Tiny Dester is different from all the other fasts that we have. Tiny Dester is not found in the Talmud at all. It doesn't mention Tiny Dester at all. Tiny Dester is accustomed to fast on Tiny Dester. It doesn't have the same... It's completely different from the other fasts. And that is reflected actually in the following way, which is actually quite interesting. The other fast days, with the exception of the tenth day of Tevet, the other fast days when they fall on Shabbat, for example, say Tisha B'Av happens a lot, Tisha B'Av falls on Shabbat. So when do we fast? Sunday. Fast on Sunday. The reason we fast on Sunday is that the Gemara says that we don't, like to, we don't like to push forward things that have a negative side to them. This was a very unhappy day. All well, the fast days are days of, not, you know, they have a sad side to them. Um, so we always, we don't bring it, push it forward. We always fast afterwards. That's true of all the fasts. It's not true of Tiny Esther, though. Tiny Esther, when it falls, let's say Purim comes on on Sunday, then we fast uh, before that. We fast on Thursday, but today. We don't say it falls on Sunday, we fast on Monday. Monday would be hard to fast anyway. Monday is Shushan Purim. So Tuesday. So we don't do that either, so we always push it earlier. So the question is, why do we do that, actually? Why are we fasting earlier rather than later. Yeah? Truly historically, it would be absurd to fast to do the tiniest Esther after Purim. I mean, it's crazy in terms of the content. Okay, that's correct. That's to be explained. Yeah? Well, isn't the part of the Simcha? Right. So, so if, we, if we put it off, then we've actually lost Right. I mean, the truth of the matter is that in the, in the Megillah, Esther doesn't fast on 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 what day we call tiny Esther. The fast of Esther she says the Mordecai gather all the Jews of Shushan and fast for three days and three nights don't eat or drink for three days and three nights I also won't eat and drink I'll go to the king whatever happens happens. So that was around Passover time when the decree first comes out. And um first degree comes out comes out on the thirteenth day of of Nisan, which is the two days before Passover. It's actually very interesting, that's when it happens. So presumably she's fasting maybe on Passover, right around that time of the year. She's certainly not fasting on Purim or before Purim, which is much, much later, which is twelve months later. So point is that uh, the custom is to fast before Purim. So the custom, as you both said, is to connect the fast to Purim itself. The fast of Esther and the observance of Purim are connected to each other. What is the idea of the fast of Esther and Purim being connected to each other? That's why you always have to fast just before Purim, so you have to push it forward to Thursday in this case. So what's interesting is that in the Megillah itself I couldn't spend much time on this today but in the Megillah itself there are a set of directives that come that are found in the last chapter of the Megillah, chapter 9 this is chapter 10 is three verses whatever. strange but in the last part of the Megillah it, it describes how the holiday of Purim came to be observed so it works like this in the says in chapter 9 on the days when the Jews had rested from the war not on the day of the war itself but the days that they rested from the war that is to say for most of the Jews that was on the 14th day of the, mo- of the 12th month that we call Adar. on that day they fought on the 13th and they rested on the 14th and it said they made that day according to the Megillah Yo Mishteb Simcha, a day of rejoicing, partying and rejoicing. And the same thing is true of the Jews on the who fought in the city of Shushan. They fought also on the fourteenth of Adar, and they rested on the fifteenth. And they made that those day that day, a day of Mishtav Simcha, drinking, partying, and of joy. So that was the initial observance of Purim on the year of the war when they first fight. That's how the Megillah describes it. Then the Megillah says an odd thing in chapter 9, very strange. It says that the following verse, in verse number 19 on page 1800, 1800 in this translation. Therefore, Alcain, okay, therefore, here they translate. Translation, that's why village Jews who live in unwalled towns. What verse? Verse 19. 19. 19. That is why village Jews who live in unwalled towns observe the 14th day of the month of Adar and make it a day of merrymaking. It's uh, Simcha, Mishter. Mishter is Simcha, merrymaking and feasting. The translating mishter is merrymaking and feasting. The Yom Tov, the holiday or a good day, literally, and an occasion for sending gifts to one another. So that actually is very strange, because it, the book seems to be talking about a later point in time. Therefore, the Jews, and then it says in the Arei ha Yudim ha-Prazim, Hayashvim bi-Arei The translator here, following a rabbinic view, the Mishnah, Translates arima prozim cities that don't have walls on them, or undefended cities. That's the translation. Prozik means scattered, dispersed, or scattered. They observe the fourteenth of Adar, which is we call Purim, they make it a day of Mishte simcha, a good day, Yom Tov, and they send gifts to each other. So the, the Megillah actually seems to talk about two different observances: the observance in the first year on the part of all Jews who rested the day of resting not the day of war but the day they rested they are observing in a day of mishdeh v'simcha joy and, and partying and in later year says the Megil therefore Jews in Horei ha they observe the 14th of Adar and the Megil added two things Yom Tov a good day and then it says Mishrach Manot sending of gifts to their to, to their friends. So it sounds like the Megillah is taking note of the later custom, or we elements of a later custom that the Jews in the Prozim, I would just say that the simple reading of the text that is the Jews in Araya Prozot, which is understood by the Mishnah and the Talmud and every and everybody else to this day, that it means city Jews who live in unwalled cities as opposed to Jews who live in walled cities I don't believe that's the, the simple meaning of the, of the text actually I don't think it means that I think that that's a rabbinic understanding of it for whatever reason but means actually all the cities except for, except for Shushan in other words with Haman Haman said to the king there's the people out there scattered and separate throughout all your all your kingdom all your states in any event it means the vast majority of Jews except for Shushan Shushan is the exception in the Megillah but if they, nowadays they, whatever this is written or whatever later on they are observing it as Mishnah but also sending gifts to their friends and then Mordecai we are told wrote a letter he wrote this all down and he sends Sparim, which is very common in the Megillah to send the Sefer Means a, some kind of a letter, literally a book, a missive, and he ins- gives them the following instructions. He sends it. It says to all the states of the king Achashveirosh, near and far. That's verse number twenty. Krovim And what does he say to them? He says, to accept upon themselves." yom adar to accept upon themselves in every year the 14th of the month of Adar and the 15th of the month of Adar in every single year just according to the days that the Jews had rested from their enemies and to observe the month which was converted from sorrow to joy from mourning to festivity to make them so Mordechai's directive he said the following he said the Jews should observe first of all he mentions two days and not one day similar to the days that they rested I'll get back to that in a second and the month it's a very special month but to make these days days of rejoicing sending gifts to their friends and sending gifts to poor people. It's interesting that he also took out, the text at least takes out the word Yom Tov. Now, I don't believe, in terms of simple, plain meaning of the text, that Yom Tov, today we call Yom Tov Yom Tov, Yom Tov, has a very particular meaning, which is the day that you don't work. But the truth of the matter is that I don't think Yom Tov means that in the Bible. Yom Tov in the Bible, we have with David, when he goes to Naval. It means a day of joy, a very good day, the day where you shear the sheep, the day where you get your bonus at work, and that kind of thing. So what's interesting is that Yom Tov is out, Matanot, Levyonim are in, and in addition to that, he sent the Jews letters saying they should observe the days, plural. According to the days they rested in the first year, Now what does that mean? Let's start. Let's start with the days they rested in the first year. The text lends itself to two possible readings. We've basically been brainwashed though to read it one way, but, uh, but I'll unbrainwash you in a second. What well, it's it's understood to mean it could, it could be right. The way it's understood, that's the way the mission understands it, is that the, you observe Purim the same way it was observed in the first year that is to say that some Jews observe it on the fourteenth day and other Jews observe it on the fifteenth day that's the way it's typically understood but in point of fact when you read the Megillah you don't have to read it that way not at all it sounds more to me the other way which is Mordechai instructs all the Jews to observe two days all Jews are observing both days at both days are it's a two day festival and then that's one thing he added Everybody has to observe two days. Um, it's also possible to read it the other way, that that's not the case. But in any event, he added something else, which is the gifts to the poor. And the adding the gifts to the poor is important. Then McGill explains why he did that. Actually, he explains why he did both things. And that's, and the explanation is found in verses 24 and verse 25. And the explanation is it says the Jews by the way it says the Jews accepted in verse 23 the Jews accepted that which they had begun to do and that which Mordechai wrote to them so you see that Mordechai wrote something different they did what they they continued their practice of mishta and Simcha and Mishroach and Mordecai added two days to Purim, and he added gifts to the poor. And the reason he added those two things, says the Megillah, is because Haman, the Agagite, Amalek, was the enemy of all the Jews. Tzareh Kol HaYudim, the enemy of all the Jews, he thought to destroy them. And he cast the lot to confuse them and to destroy them. But when she came before the king, he said with a declaration, his evil thought should re- redound upon his own head and they hanged him and his sons on the gallows on the tree therefore in other words the point of the Megillah is that Haman was the enemy of all Jews not just some Jews not just successful not just wealthy but, even, but anybody who was Jewish including the disenfranchised ones the Evionim the marginal people so therefore in the celebration of Purim Mordechai said we have to make sure everybody is included and actually a very important point, because what Mordechai is doing, and this is actually important, and I get to the reason I'm saying all this now, tiny sister, is because what Mordechai does is to convert Purim into a Jewish holiday. The initial observance of Purim in no sense could be called Jewish. He had Mishte But the Mishte simcha, the partying, if you read the Megillah, you'll notice there are ten parties in the Megillah. It's partying from beginning to end. The book begins with two parties. It's not an accident. The ten of them. So the Jews, Achashverosh has a, has a mishta. Vashti has a mishta. Achashverosh has a second mishta. then he sits down with Haman, and the decree goes out, then Nestor invites the king to two parties. Right? He makes, when Esther becomes the queen, there's a party. The ten of them. So the Jewish response to the victory of Bishteva Simcha on the 14th and the 15th is a Persian, a Persian response. There's nothing in that celebration that suggests that the Jews are any different from anybody else in the kingdom of Rosh. And when Mordechai though, sends his, his letter to the Jews that they have to include the Evyonim Matanot Levyonim so that converts it into a Jewish holiday, because in the Chumash, when the Chumash speaks about the Samachta bechagecha, you shall rejoice on your festivals, and the Chumash adds, it says that about two festivals. It says that Sukkot and, and Shavuot. Those are the two. I told you, you should rejoice in your festivals, you and your children, and your slaves, and your the Levite in your midst, and the widow and the orphan. In short, everybody's included. So so it's that's what Mordechai is saying Mordechai is saying that the celebration of Purim cannot only be a Persian celebration it should be a Jewish celebration interesting thing is he didn't eliminate the Persian celebration which is why Purim actually is a funny kind of holiday there's something about it that's not Jewish that's that's, that's the truth of it the drinking in particular that's not a Jewish That is Jewish practice, actually. To get drunk and uh, we don't see that, actually. To to drink in moderation, I don't mean the Rambam's view, the Rambam didn't like drinking altogether. It's pure, because if you drink, you lose your rational faculty, which is for him a great problem. But leaving that out, there's there's something about it that feels different. There's a pagan side to Purim, and that's because the initial Purim, as the Megillah describes it, has precisely that effect. That's what it is. Mordecai, was, I guess he was smart enough to know he can't eliminate it, doesn't try to eliminate it he keeps it, but in addition, he added two things he added second day of Purim however we understand that which is either everybody observes two days or each group is observing a different day that's how it's understood rabbinically, I don't think that's the plain, best reading of the text actually, but in any event, but in any, however you see it there's an inclusive element to Purim. Everybody has to be included. That's what Mordechai is doing over here, and that's the Purim that we know. It's interesting that it still retains the other piece, which is another conversation. But that's what Mordechai is doing. And he sends around the letter, and it says that the Jews accepted it. The Kibel Hayudim in verse number twenty-three should underline that verse. The Jews accepted that which they had begun to do. And that which Mordechai wrote to them. By the way, let me make simply a side point that was, as you well know, I'm working on the Megillah now. And uh, I remember a couple of years ago, it was in Jerusalem, just before Purim. And there was a discussion, I was in Hebrew University, there was a discussion about the Megillah. It's a program called Chavruta. there, where when I go to Israel, I often teach there. So anyway, they invited me to be part of this discussion with the faculty and with the students and everything. So the question that one of the students raised, which I've heard many times, and I've seen it in various contexts, is that this particular person found, she found very problematic for killing all these people. There's so much killing going on. I must confess in all cancer. that killing Haman's army doesn't bother me in the least, actually. I must confess I plead guilty to that crime. But, I said, that's me. But for those that it does bother, I would say the following. There's a fellow named Frederick Bush. Actually, is quite excellent. He writes the, um, there's a Christian Bible, I what it's called the Word Series. He's quite good. They're excellent on the language. What they study how the language They're Terrific, actually. He's excellent. And he also has a problem with it. I never met the man. But if I would meet him, I would explain to Professor Bush that he has misread the book, actually. He's failed to grasp one simple point in the book, which is this. When Esther goes to the king, I just tell this to you, in case anybody says to you, maybe it bothers you. In case anybody says, how can they kill... When Esther goes to the king, I mean, there are many ways to respond to this, actually. But one way to respond is the story never actually take, happens. So let's start, let's, let's start with that. But that's a separate issue. It's a bad but the bad stuff. But the point is a different... Which is, when Esther goes to the king, and Esther says to the king, listen, the king has already said that Esther, king hangs Haman. And his sons also, he kills them also, right? Kills Haman. Haman's killed. And Esther says to the king in chapter 8 of the Megillah, please, she begs the king, she falls down on the ground, she's crying, the king extends his, his scepter, what do you want, Esther? Please, she says, do me a favor, rescind the decree Rescind your, your decree. Because the decree is out there. And on the 13th of Adar, which is, what, Shabbat? says, the 11th of Adar. So, on the 13th of Adar, all the Jews are going to be killed. Please rescind the decree. She says, because how could I live? She says, how could I live and see my people be destroyed? The people of my mulat my How could I... How could I how could I survive? I, I, I can't I won't be able to survive. So the king says, you know something? I'd like to help you. But everybody knows that when the king issues a decree, you can't rescind it. The same we don't there's no objective evidence that's true, but it is true in the Megillah. The book of Daniel says the same thing. Once you issue a decree, the king's seal, it's a sealed decree, can't be can't be changed. So therefore I can't rescind the decree, he says, but I'll tell you what I can do here's my seal you can write it a different decree you can write whatever you want that I'm on I'm on the side of the Jews we can't stop the war it's got to be a war I'm on I'm on your side take my seal and write what is good in your eyes katov b'aneichem so that's what Esther does she writes exactly the same language as the first decree but opposite that is the Jews have the right to defend themselves and to do exactly to the enemy what they would do to them now first point is very simple let me make one simple point. When Esther goes to the king and says to the king to rescind the decree, let's say, Esther, let's say the king would say to Esther, Of course I'll rescind the decree. And what would happen on the 13th of Adar? There'd be no war at all. This point seems to have escaped all these great, you know, there'd be no war. When Esther goes to the king and says, Take back Shiva Asvarim, there will be no war whatsoever. The Jews don't want to fight a war. There's no reason for a war. Just call off your war. Call off your dogs. That's what Esther says to the king. But Ahasuerus doesn't want that. Ahasuerus says we can't do that because every time you write a decree with a seal, you can't undo it. Therefore, there must be a war. But you know what? I'll tell you what I'll do. I'm on your side. But you you write whatever you want. Now, in point of fact, there are two ways to understand why Ahasuerus does that. Depending how you read the Megillah, this is a question of how you read the book in general, which is an ancient dispute: is the man an idiot or is wicked? I guess he could be both too, but I mean, but but which is he primarily? Just a fool, maybe even a well-intentioned fool, or is a bad guy? So this, the answer is, it's an old dispute, and you can read the book both ways. It's a perfectly legitimate to read the book in both directions and you come out with a completely different reading. If he's a fool, I mean, it's funny, it makes no sense, but we can't take back the decree. We can issue a second contradictory decree. You laugh. I mean, There's it's kind of, a comic element to the book. So it's, but in point of fact, you can read it differently. What do you want to say? want to say that, that respectfully ask that we go back to the book of Judges we'll get back there but we'll get back to it. I think It's, relevant, relevant to today. it's rele- obviously it's relevant but it's all relevant it's even relevant to Yiftach's daughter too by the way we'll, we'll get there here's the point here's the point the, the point is the point is that if you read it not as a form if you read it as he knows exactly what he's doing so what is he what is he thinking actually he's thinking like this he's convinced that is a bad guy after you get him Haman's thinking about becoming the king so he doesn't want in other words if there's no war if there's a war what's going to happen someone's going to die either the Jews will die or the army will die what he wants to do in the story is he doesn't want no war. He actually wants the war. But he wants, because Haman was out to get him, Haman is hiring a whole army. So therefore, it's he who insists on the war, because Hidatka wants a war, but he also doesn't want to kill his fellow Persians. So he wants the best of all worlds, which is he wants to kill his enemy, but have someone else do it for him. And in fact, the language of the Megillah, when you hear the Megillah, you, you'll see that the language of the Megillah is 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 exactly the same when Haman says to him, there's a people out there that don't keep your laws, what does the king say? The king says, "Yeah, take my seal and do whatever you want, do what is good in your own eyes. He doesn't even ask him who the people are. Not that he doesn't know, but he's not going to say it. You, you take care of it, which means in case something goes wrong, you did it. And the same thing is true in the second story, the undoing, the second letter, which is that we can't rescind it. it has got to be a war. There's got to be the killing. But he doesn't want to do it himself. So he has the Jews shooting. How many of the Jews killed, he says. That's the point. That's the second level over here. So that's about, in case someone asks you about the bloody, it is a bloody book, but, but, it's not, but Esther didn't want a war altogether. Now we get to the last piece of this, the last letter. Yes? Quick question. Um, just to... Um Connected slightly to to the Gidon situation, he doesn't. Um, if the king doesn't wish to kill his own Persians, yes, and that's part of one of the the uh, the, the sins and mistakes that Gidon makes is, is, that he turns and he basically kills his, his own, or does wages war on his own. Right. So does Yiftach. We get to it very shortly. Right. Yeah. Um, did no one make that fine distinction between? I'm picking up my sword to kill my own versus I have the Jews kill the person. You know, in other words, and or, my question is, could these soldiers have been mercenaries, non-Persians? Well, we don't know who the soldiers are. Yeah. What? 127 states. Right. The soldiers are people. He buys the soldiers. Right. So of them, they give it to a hired army. There are mercenaries. Yeah. So when you say he didn't want to kill his fellow Persians, he doesn't want to kill anybody. Why? why, why he wants the Jews to do his dirty work for Of course. Mm-hmm. It's exactly the story of Joseph and Pharaoh. Mm-hmm. He doesn't want to enslave the Egyptians. He wants Joseph to do it for him. It's based on the Joseph story. Mm-hmm. By, by the way, this is... And by, this is a standard not, operating procedure for most despots. Um, they don't want to do it themselves. Someone else does it for you. Mm-hmm. Of course. That's the second one. And there's another letter in the Megillah. Mm-hmm. The last letter. We don't know why there's another letter. But the Megillah ends with another letter. And Esther, Esther and Mordecai send the letter... That's towards the end of chapter 9. They wrote another letter. This is sent out again to the hundred and to the Jews, they sent the letter. In 127 states. This letter is sent apparently only to the Jews. Only to the Jews. In 127 states. And in verse number 30, Shalom Words of Truth and words of peace. And there's a second letter, and this letter is with to 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 certify, to validate these days of Purim in their appropriate times. as, as Mordechai the Jew and Esther, the Queen had Pihashekimu Somot As they accepted upon themselves the matter of the fasting and the crying out, that's why I mention all this, kind of the matter of the fasting and the crying out. So, what does that verse mean? Actually, that's an excellent question. We can't say for sure what it means. The commentaries are divided. It's difficult verse actually. Some some think that it refers to right to accept upon themselves the fasting sounds like that they're sending a letter about right to accept to accept to to validate the holiday of Purim right the same way they accepted on themselves the fasting which refers to earlier in the book when Esther says to Mordechai gather all the Jews of Shushan and fast for three days and three nights I will also fast whatever happens happens so some think it's an allusion to that Now that the second letter is, we want you to celebrate Purim, which apparently they've already accepted, there's a second letter. Accept it the same way that you have accepted the fast. The Ibn Ezra actually, and many others, in his footsteps, have a different interpretation, and they point out that the expression, divrei shalom veAmet" words of peace and words of truth, are found in a different place in the Bible, in the book of Zechariah. And there it refers to to the fast days. So the fast days about the destruction of the Temple. And so what they're saying is the same way you observe the fast days the 10th of and the 17th of Tammuz and Tisha B'Av the same way you observe those fast days we also order you to observe to fulfill the day of Purim. Many in the land of Israel in particular have written with, with the claim that there was some resistance to this holiday of Purim altogether, because the holiday of Purim, the book of Esther, seems to be in no relationship to the land of Israel, to the temple, so maybe some Jews felt we shouldn't have such a holiday. So they said the second letter, that's the argument. The second letter is no. The same way we still observe the fast days for the destruction of the temple, we also tell you to observe the holiday of Purim. In any event, I don't personally think that's the best way to look at it, I think that McGill was saying something else which is very relevant to us. Which is why I went through all this. went through all this because we're about to read McGill on Sunday. And it's a good thing to try to understand what we're reading. Let's start with that. Now the point is, the letter is saying something else about Purim. This is a very important point. And it, it, it also explains something about this. It's a custom. Okay, it's a custom. But customs have to make sense too. What they're saying is, the festival of Purim, the first part of the rejoice is the Mishtabah Simcha. It's a day of merrymaking, it's a day of joy, it's a very happy day, etc. We, we share the joy. But the second letter is saying something else. Words of peace and words of truth. There's another side to Purim. And that is, we ought to remember on Purim the fasting and the, and the crying out. It probably does refer, among other things, the earliest story where Esther tells all the Jews of Shushan to fast and that is, is another side to Purim which is reflected for example in the way we read with the Ashkenazim I can't speak for the Sephardim but the way the Ashkenazim read, read, read Megillat Esther and that is the tune for Megillat Esther and the tune for Eicha virtually identical the book of Lamentations and the book of Esther's tune the Ashkenazic tune are virtually identical. There is something about the book of Esther which is very frightening, actually. And it's a very simple point. The book of Esther is a book in which God is never mentioned. At best, God is in the background. God is hidden. And on top of it, the book of Esther contains the story of the war against Amalek. In this case, it's Haman. And he's just one person, but he has enormous resources and power. He almost wins. We manage, through Esther's intercession to survive and the main point though of course is that Amalek is always there it's there in every generation as the book itself says these days the words Sefer Zikaron and Dar Dar those words are central words in Megil Esther, not just Amalek so therefore what Esther is sending out to all the Jews is she's in one sense perhaps redefining the day of Purim the day of Purim is not just the joy the day of Purim has another plaintive side to it because we are remembering on Purim, it's all about memory. Remembering on Purim, Amalek. Just one second before you comment, Rabbi Salavetzik was fond of saying. I heard it from him more than one occasion that there are two days on the Jewish calendar which can't be observed properly. first is Yom Kippur, and Yom Kippur we're fasting. The Torah says we have to fast. It doesn't say fast. It says Tannu and natural to afflict your soul. So we can't. So we, so we don't eat on Yom Kippur we afflict our souls but Yom Kippur it should be a, a very joyous day it's a day of forgiveness what could be a happier day than Yom Kippur the Mishnah says it the two happiest days on the calendar one is Yom Kippur so on the other hand the Torah says fast so what do we do we have a practice which the Gemara invents that the meal before Yom Kippur is a festive meal whoever eats and drinks on the ninth of, of, of of Tishrei as if that person fasted the 9th and the 10th. Because you can't eat and drink on the 10th if you should. And the other day, which is anomalous, is Purim. Purim, we are happy, Mishdev Simcha. But Purim is a frightening day because it's about God's absence, it's about a Malik, it's about almost losing to a malek, it's about living in exile. That means God doesn't communicate. So, on the other hand, Mishdev Simcha so what the Jews have done is have appended to Purim the day we call Tiny Esther even though Esther didn't fast anywhere near Purim but Tiny Esther is part of Purim that's what two people said earlier and I wanted to explain through the Megillah how that's what so Tiny Esther is a completely different kind of fast day it's a day that's connected to Purim and of course that's why we always (laughs) are fasting before Purim they have supported what do you want to say that when you commemorate the fasting and the sending out of the letters, it, it, it actually akin saying that the salvation could not come if the Jews have not banded together and supported her with the fast extensively. it's like in, in the story of 10 um, where it said that God did not hear he did not say that until he heard our cry but there has to be a request from the people for, for God to intervene so okay not sure that in the case of the Tzimitraim it's actually a request the crying out can be a cry of suffering God God interprets it as a request let's put it that way the other question I have for you so the part of the Purim comes from the to yom tov because Mishta, the Simcha is a partying but to have a suuda. well, Seudah has a Mishta too Mishta means drinking, literally but most if you think about the significant Meals that we have on the calendar, they all contain Mishnah, the main one being the Sabbath and Yom Tov. We call that Kiddush. That's what Kiddush is. Kiddush is the, I mean, not just Kiddush. I mean, the truth is, any significant uh, meal that you've gone to in your life probably has. Okay, every significant meal that you've gone to go to a wedding most weddings have something before the meal they have drinks they have a board. so the the drinking is not just a biological act meals are social events like can, they can have a, they make you million different kinds of statements the way one eats meals is very significant so the drinking now the way it's observed today at least in the world I don't know the Svanic world here, but the Ashkenazic world the excessive drinking that's another story. That's nothing to do with, that has to do with something else completely different, but not getting into that. But, but the point is, now the meal, it's very simple. The meal is the way Jews observe festivals. The Purim is rabbinically observed the way Jews observe all festivals. We read the Torah of the Megillah, we have a meal, and there's some aspects on Yom Tov of giving tzedakah, pleasures for charity or whatever it is. So Purim from that perspective is a standard observance. From the standpoint of how people observe for him, it's not standard at all. The excessive drinking and all the other stuff and the cross-dressing and the masks and all that, that's a different conversation. But in any event, what I wanted to point out about Tiny Esther, which is today, observed today anyway, is that it is emerging from this verse in the last chapter of Esther, which is describing, we have no other book like this in the Bible, a book which has an entire chapter devoted to how the holiday is emerging.